Welcome to Curated Conversations, a podcast discussing issues related to equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm your host, Shaliza Jamal, founder of Curated Leadership, an organization that fosters partnerships with leadership teams, employees, and individuals to develop their knowledge in the areas of equity, diversity, and inclusion to foster and build inclusive communities. Today, I'm joined by Javier Davila, a queer Latin award-winning educator from Toronto with the heart of a blue whale. He aims to co-create radically loving alternatives centered in interdependence, collective care, and indisposability. He is the author of several resources and programs in intersectional gender-based and sexual violence prevention, healthy relationships, and transformative justice. A student equity program advisor and educator with the Toronto District School Board for the past 16 years, he aims to center the wisdom of QTBIPOC or QT BIPOC and disabled youth in building communities of care while addressing structural oppression head on. He is co-facilitator of Boy Boy at Central Toronto Youth Services, a drop-in program for queer, trans and non-binary guys a member of The Good Guys, a collective of racialized men using bold experiments towards abolition, and a member of the Transformative Justice Collective at Rittenhouse. He is currently writing a thesis on possibilities for justice within patriarchal masculinity and white supremacy using pods of vulnerability, care, and accountability. You can follow Javier on Twitter, and these will all be in our show notes at xjusticexpeace, where he says, hashtag free Palestine and hashtag no one is disposable. Welcome, Javier. I'm so excited to have you here with us today. Thank you so much, Shaliza. Um, I'm really grateful uh, to have been invited and to be on your, your podcast. And it always feels a little awkward to hear your own bio kind of read back to you. Um, because I'm always unsure as to what to include or what to put in it. But really... I'm like many people, someone who's been traumatized for a number of reasons and who's trying to find their way back home um, while recognizing and seeing myself uh, in others. And I don't have all the answers, but I've learned some things along the way. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to share some of that here today and uh, and also learn from your wisdom. Too. Thank you so much, Javier. I know what you mean about the bios. I always feel it's kind of self-conscious in different spaces. And then I think white folks are not ashamed of giving like a one-page bio, so we should be proud of that. And it's also lovely for folks to hear about all the amazing work that you're doing because I am a fan. So, so it's really important to hear that. Thank you. And also, I wanted to just start with this question because many listeners may not be familiar with the term Latin, which I used to introduce you. And my understanding is that it is gender neutral term to describe someone of Latin American descent. Um, you know, when I was living in the States, Latinx was a term that was really commonly used. So I was just wondering if you could share with us perhaps why you use it and why you think it may be important to, sh to shift away rather uh, from terms like Latinx or Latina or Latino? Really good question. Um, so it's a term that I've only recently um, been using to describe myself. And perhaps a little bit of context feels important. My dad is from Ecuador 
and his mom, my grandmother, is indigenous to the continent. He moved here when he was 16. Uh, and my mom is white and her family goes back to England. And I took on mostly my mom's white skin. So I'm conditionally white passing, but my brother and sister um, are brown and my dad is also brown. And at a very young age, we actually came up with a story to kind of describe the differences in our skin colors because we could tell that the lighter your skin was, the more valued you were. Um, I don't know. Is it okay if I share the story? A hundred percent. I want to hear everything you have to, to say. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, so in Ecuador, there's this dish, it's called a bola de verde, and it's basically made of plantains and they're kind of like smushed and inside would be like the meat contents and vegetables. And the story goes like this. There's this birthday party in Ecuador held at the top of this hill in this house, and they make this massive bola de verde. And it's stored in the garage because it's the only place that it can be stored because it's so large. And at the bottom of the hill happens to be this rocket station. And this rocket is launching off at the same time as this birthday celebration. The garage door opens and the bola de verde rolls down the hill, kind of gets stuck into the bottom of the rocket, goes up into space and breaks into three space, uh, three pieces. So that's myself. Uh, my brother, Michael, and my sister, Jennifer. And the color of our skin was directly proportional to the proximity uh, we were to the fire emanating from the rocket. And so that's how we sort of, you know, differentiated ourselves and, and, and came up with this. But I mostly identified as white growing up and distanced myself from my Ecuadorian heritage for a number of reasons. I mean, internalized racism and some of that passed down from my father. Um, but we also grew up in a high control religious sect and that was our primary identity. Um, and I also went to school with folks who were almost all white. And so trying to fit in and identifying in that way um, reduced the stigma of the separation I felt growing up poor, growing up in a religious cult that required me to stand outside for the national anthem or not celebrate birthdays or not have friends with people of the same religion. And so it's only in the last decade that I'm beginning to rediscover my connections to my Latin heritage. And I've played with a number of terms. And unfortunately, I don't have family that I can actually talk to or connect with since I was shunned when I came out as queer. And so this has been more of an embodied experience and speaking with others um, and not feeling like I fit in quite anywhere. And so conditionally white passing Latin uh, seems to work as a gender neutral term that describes both you know, my background, uh, but also uh, doesn't, uh, reaffirm a gender binary. And as opposed to Latin or Latinx, um, I'm not going to jump into the debate there as to which term folks should use or not use um, or speak for someone else's identity. But conditionally white passing Latin uh, is something that feels right at this moment. Thank you. I really appreciate everything you shared. Just starting with the story. First of all, that is a very beautiful it's like a creation story. <laughs> when I was listening, I said, is this based off a creation story? Because that is 
that is a wonderful story that you and your siblings created. So thank you for sharing that. Also, just to say that I resonate with that, that is a familiar experience for me as a light-skinned South Asian brown person. We say brown as mm. well, right? But people, I know in the States, people were con- confused. They're like, you're brown, but you're not. Are you, are you Latina? Are you not? So there's lots of questions about that. But I really resonate with that because I didn't really understand the light skin privilege as a child. Mm-hmm. And I always tried to get a tan. I would get a tan as much as possible. And then I remember I started getting like a heat rash. So I couldn't go in the sun. Um, and I remember the names people would call me or they'd call me powder in my, mm-hmm. in my mosque. So I totally mm-hmm. understand that idea. I also want to thank you for sharing that vulnerability of, uh, you know, being kind of shunned from your community because that is, that is big because I see you as a community builder uh, and so I can only imagine mm-hmm. how that must have been for you. Yeah, it's it, it's something that it's I continue to process and it's taking a long time to process. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also informed my practice. I think mm-hmm. shunning, exile, punishment are the tools that we've typically used to address justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know they don't work mm-hmm. and that they're actually really, really harmful and perpetuate cycles of violence and harm. And so having experienced that myself um, has really opened me up to possibilities of what are some other ways we can look at um, in addressing social injustice and addressing violence, whether it be interpersonal or gender-based violence, or whether it be structural. I think that leads me to ask you, you know, we first met, I think it was, you know, an elementary school off of uh, Coxwell or something like that. And mm-hmm. I attended mm-hmm. one of your positive spaces training because at that time, um, as a cisgender heterosexual woman, I didn't know a lot about the 2S LGBTQIA plus experience or what positive spaces mm-hmm. were. Um, and in hearing you talk, you know, um, if you can tell us a little bit about what are these positive spaces, how were they created and fostered? Is that what you're sort of talking about when you're talking about an alternative? So perhaps a little context uh, I'll provide in uh, November 2008 or around then, the TDSB created its first uh, gender-based violence prevention office and its mandate, um, according to what was called policy P071, um, which was eventually passed in April 2010, was to address all sorts of gender-based violence. So this included um, homophobia, transphobia, biphobia, but also um, sexual violence. Um, and because we saw it as rooted in patriarchy um, and, of course, other systems of oppression. And we noticed that there was a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge among the schools that we were visiting. So we were an interdisciplinary team, two social workers, four people whose titles were student equity program advisors, and one coordinator. So you know, seven of us um, to work in 600 schools with 250,000 students and 40,000 teachers. And so we came up with uh, a goal of training at least one person in every single school. This is not to say that there were folks that weren't already doing this work. Um, The TDSB has had student equity program advisors and equity folks in the 80s like Tim McCaskill. We have folks from the Triangle Program who have been working with queer and trans youth since the 90s. We have folks like Steve Solomon, social workers, um, and many other folks whose names I probably don't even know um, who've been doing this work, and students who've been doing this work. Um, But 
here we now had this office that was actually named Gender-Based Violence Prevention, uh, which in and of itself was a symbol saying, hey, this matters and this is something we need to address. And so I think it gave some systemic backing and courage to educators that this is something we really can't leave out. Um, And creating positive spaces, the idea was that there would be at least one space in every school where a student um, would not be shamed for either identifying with or asking questions about sexual identity, gender identity, gender expressions, sexual health, um, healthy relationship dynamics, consent, boundaries. And of course, every school should be this you know, positive space, but that's not the reality. And so it was a small, bold experiment um, towards creating at least one member in every single school who would then take that training back um, to their schools. Looking back at it now, there were a lot of problems with it. um, And there were a lot of good things. I'm curious what your experience of the program was when yeah, you attended, if you can remember. Absolutely. That was so long ago. I do, I do. I remember the school I was working at. Uh, I, I really, I appreciated it. You know, I'll tell you a few things. So first of all, I learned like, uh, you know, correct terminology. I learned that having a positive space doesn't mean you have to be facilitating or teaching. It could be just a teacher having a space for students to chill out. And mm-hmm. um, I'll go back and forth, but that's exactly what I did. So I remember bringing back tons of posters, handing them out to all my colleagues, talking about it at our department head meetings, handing out the posters and, you know, talking about the importance of pronouns, talking about the importance of recognizing um, gender identities that are not cisgender or, con- uh, you know, conforming to binaries. Um, and I remember mm-hmm. that it was really enlightening. I remember that I had a student who said, uh, Miss, on my, on my attendance, it says she, but I'd like you to call me they. And I remember yeah. being like, okay, like this is important. And I remember I made mistakes and I would correct myself and they would come talk to me after class and say, I appreciate that. Um, I feel comfortable and safe in this class. Um, and I also ended up teaching the equity and human rights course or equity and social justice, the HSE 4M. And one of your colleagues had helped me kind of put the pitch forward to my principal. So I think this course gave me the confidence to then pitch it to my vice principal and principal and say, I want to teach this equity course. And then through that equity course, I was able to take what I learned from you and what I'm learning from teachers mm-hmm. as anyone from the 2SLGBTQ plus community. I think it was important mm-hmm. for me to do that research. And I think your session was like, it piqued my interest and then it really fueled me to continue learning more. And there's so much more I need to learn. But I think that's really what it did for me. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's actually really uh, meaningful feedback. And it's interesting, although the Gender-Based Violence Prevention Office does not exist structurally as it did before, Mm -hmm. um, there are no longer student equity program advisors attached to the Gender-Based Violence Prevention Office. There is no longer a coordinator. We are only left with two social workers. Um, And so the Gender-Based Violence Prevention Office has sort of quietly been dissolved, but this policy still exists. Mm -hmm. And this is at a time now when we see like gender-based violence and sexual violence prevention, direct specific offices and resources are now mandated across the country in every single post-secondary institution. 
Um, so I'd really like to see more resources dedicated uh, to specifically naming gender-based violence as an issue uh, in every school board. So I'm wondering, this is just my curiosity, I also work at the school board and you know, when you first told me it was two of you, I didn't know that it was just two of you. But it seems like ridiculous when these issues are so life or death for some students. And I just wonder what, I mean, we probably can't, this is above our pay grade, but in terms of, you know, if we have these policies, why don't we have the funding to hire more social workers? I was talking to a social worker who was from the TDSB now in a different district. And she was telling me, you know, Shaliza, I come home every day and I'm exhausted from hearing the stories of our young learners and how much angst they are going uh, going through, not only with COVID, but other issues that they're dealing with. And we're so short staffed. And I don't know if you have any comments. I mean, we can't do anything about it particularly except for, you know, have the spaces that we have. But it just seems like such a missed opportunity to have these conversations. Uh, absolutely. And resourcing and funding um, and funding structures is definitely something that needs to be addressed. Um, there are a number of folks who have, and researchers who have a number of opinions on this. I have my own opinions on this. Some of it, I mean, schooling is based on provincial funding models. Um, we also have a school board that is really heavy um, in, you know, executive. And I'm wondering what it would look like to have more focus and resources dedicated uh, to schools uh, than it would to folks who are generally disconnected from staff or and, or, and in students. You know, I think that too, because, uh, you know, I do a lot of coaching as well or participation type of workshops. And it comes up again that, you know, uh, schools are meant to be a site of learning. They can also be these sites of oppression because we're, uh, you know, perpetuating all these cycles of violence, but also of inequity. You know, uh, it's not a secret that not only in Canada, but I've researched America, for example, New York and Toronto are very equivalent. There is still a gap in achievement between Black and Indigenous students. There is still an over-representation of Black, Indigenous uh, students in expulsions and suspensions. Um, there, you know, if you look at the data I looked at, it was a survey maybe in 2013, but it still rings true that 2SLGBTQ plus students show a negative sense of well-being in school. So this data hasn't changed and we really do need the resources. So I think our wondering, putting it out there to folks who are listening, who have that decision-making power, I think is definitely key. Um, you right. know, you asked, you said something about the resources and I've mentioned that I think there's a lack of resources, whether it's people resources or material resources. And so when I came to your workshop, I believe it was then, um, I signed up for your voluntary subscription, gender-based violence prevention mail out. And uh, you provide resources, mm -hmm. support for educators. I've loved this. I know that whenever I'm trying to talk to students, uh, whenever I'm trying to talk to staff, I often have pulled resources from there. I know that um, when teachers have asked me for resources, I've said, subscribe and look at this. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about what kind of made you create this? Because we know there's a lack of resources, but what made you create this mailing list? What types of resources do you share? And maybe what motivated you to curate uh, the list and what you hope to achieve? So it actually came out of the Positive Spaces program. And so every teacher or group of teachers that was trained at a school um, you know, added themselves to this list so that we could have a network of positive space educators across the TDSB system. 
Um, but as the numbers of you know participants grew, um, the requests for resources began to also um, come in more. Events for marginalized students who are 2SLGBTQ, but specifically Black or specifically Indigenous or specifically have disabilities. And folks started saying, hey, can we add more folks to this resource? Can I pass it on to this person? Can I pass it on to this person? And eventually the resource grew to include several thousand people across the TDSB, but also in school boards across Ontario and across Canada. Um, And its specific job was to provide responsive uh, resources, event announcements, uh, news related to gender-based violence prevention, sexual violence prevention, healthy relationships, but specifically using a critical anti-racist framework and a decolonial framework. And that expanded over the years. Um, and the number of resources that have been sent out is is probably in the thousands. And it was kind of really, really cool because I got so much feedback about the resources. Um, for example, there's no mechanism for folks to find out that next week uh, there is an LGBTQ games night for Black youth. However, this resource, which was an opt-in mail-out, uh, was responsive to that and so would include that particular event announcement and then staff who had uh, relationships with those students could direct them to that. And so that's kind of how it started and, mm-hmm. and kind of how it grew. Um, and especially with the uprising of the liberation for Black lives um, in the past couple of years, the resources centered very much on white supremacy, but also on how do we respond to the trauma that students are experiencing uh, in their classrooms and what uh, supports do educators actually need? So it was a number of things that were included in the resource. Um, And unfortunately it's canceled now. Really? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm on a leave of absence this year, but I'm very disappointed to hear that because I think I've emailed you a couple times when I remembered it and said, thank you for this, because I know how long it takes to curate that information. You've sent stuff about scholarships for um, Black students. You've sent things about events, and I have appreciated it so much. I've actually in, included some of the resources that you shared on my weekly updates to the 14 schools I supported and said, subscribe and here are some resources because oftentimes, you know, I even found this ironically after um, in June when uh, the first 215 Indigenous children were found in unmarked graves, we were going on daily business like nothing happened. And I would Mm -hmm. like pull resources together and sometimes I'd be like really busy doing different things but I always knew like, okay, Javier has put together this amazing list of curated, uh, you know, content that we can access different websites. And, you know, it was just, it's a lot of work and I really appreciate it. I think it was an invaluable resource. I know that I sort of bored in terms of your strategy and on my website, I have like links to different resources because that's about knowledge sharing, right? We can't, um, we can't capitalize uh, and commodify knowledge. And I, that's what I really really appreciated about that. 
So thank you again. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I, I think that was the most benefit of the resource, that they were really responsive to what was happening um, for students and, and their experiences and their identities. Um, and even directors from other school boards emailed and said, hey, can we use these resources for our schools? Um, so they definitely served a need. And I'm hoping that school boards come up with responsive ways of sending out um, resources that are not just top down, but that are actually centering marginalized voices. Mm -hmm. And that's what these particular resources aim to do. Mm -hmm. um, some of it was research, some of it was scholarship, but a lot of it was centering the voices of people whose identities have been erased. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think there were some Google workspaces and some boards have like bulletin board type mm -hmm. things, but they're not always accessed. And, you know, sometimes, of course, I know sometimes educators like myself, uh, although I do it less, people have come to me and said, just give me a lesson plan. I'll say, no, 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 I'm not going to give you a lesson plan. You've got to do the work. You can look at some resources, but it's really helpful to have that. Now, do you have a storage or a bank if people want to access resources? Do you have a website or something where people can access resources because they're always looking for tools? Uh, at the moment, no. Um, but uh, LGBTQ specific resources, um, what was created as a need over the pandemic was a network of GSA staff advisors and students. And so if you type in TDSB GSA network on that particular site, they will have resources that are responsive um, and event announcements, particular to LGBTQ youth. Um, who may be racialized, who may be black, who may be indigenous, who may be disabled. Okay, thank you so much. I'll definitely check it out. So I also follow you on Twitter, a huge fan. And recently you tweeted, I wish for a space of loving that is bigger than the fear. And a lot of the work that you do yeah. in the positive spaces is around fostering courageous conversations. And this quote uh, reminds me of those courageous conversations. And so I'm wondering if you could share with us, I did read some articles that you had written about this as well. Uh, what makes a courageous conversation? What are key elements to it? Uh, you also started our conversation talking about love as well. And how does one create a space for these courageous conversations? That's a really, really good question. Um, and a hard one to answer um, because I think it really depends on who's in the room or where the conversation's taking place, the identities of the folks in the room and their experiences, um, and how those conversations are facilitated. I mean, the term courageous conversations, folks are probably aware of it from like Glenn E. Singleton, uh, the famous black educator who came up with uh, various principles, stay engaged, experience discomfort, speak your truth, ex expect and accept non-disclosure, I think it was. Um, and these are really, really great principles. Um, but I'm wondering, um, how do we center love? And when I say love, it probably means different things to different people. Um, but for me, it's about seeing myself in the other and seeing both our spiritual, um, and, liberations as inextricably linked and connected. And I feel tingles in my body as I say that right now. 
because that's truth. That's, we are interdependent human beings. Um, one of uh, someone I've worked with and, and someone uh, whose wisdom I hold very dearly, Kai Cheng Tom, a trans woman of color who's an author, a somatic practitioner, a performer, and many, many other things, says, you know, you hold a piece of me and I hold a piece of you. And it is impossible for us to experience any sort of freedom or liberation until I actually acknowledge that piece of myself within you. Um, there's this quote from Asata Shakur that I really, really like. It says, we need to be weapons of mass construction, weapons of mass love. It's not enough just to change the system. We need to change ourselves. And so courageous conversations require risk and they require vulnerability, um, which, you know, again, has different definitions to different people, but we can probably agree on that it involves a level of emotional exposure. Um, and so how do you have those conversations um, when there are folks who've experienced intergenerational trauma, um, when there are folks who are continuing to be harmed and experiencing structural violence by white supremacy, by the police. And so one of the things I think we're afraid to do, and some have been doing it, is actually have these conversations in different ways. I think there's a space for white people to actually be having white um, action conversations and to process uh, their feelings around privilege and white supremacy and racism um, without harming racialized folks or black folks or indigenous folks. And there's work for us to also do together. So it really depends on the identities, the histories, the context, but no amount of perfect facilitation can ever dismantle the power structures in the room. That's not going to happen. And so we actually need to really name that. Um, and something else that I think is really, really important is centering the embodied wisdom and knowledge of students in the room. Um, education has often become, or teachers have been thought of as knowledge delivery systems or knowledge delivery mechanisms. Um, what if a teacher could step back and actually center um, the way that their queer, black, trans, indigenous, uh, disabled youth, the wisdom that they've been using for generations and their communities have been using for generations just to survive? And what if we've shifted our focus from surviving onto thriving and actually asking students what that means to them? Um, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing I'm getting a little off topic from your question, and I'm also thinking about a number of projects that, or two specifically that I'm working on, that involve 2SLGBTQ students, particularly those who are marginalized, uh, thriving in our school system. And then I'm also thinking about transformative justice work uh, that I'm working on with racialized men. Um, I'd be happy to speak about any of those projects. I'm not sure what our time yes, is. Yes, please, but, please do uh, if you if you're able to. Yeah, and I think everything you're saying actually does connect to the courageous conversations because, you know, you talked about the love piece. What I also heard was the calling in piece that we have to call each other in and, and build relationships. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, inextricably, like you said, our 
um, our liberation is connected. And, you know, you're reminding me of Audre Lorde's quote again, right? You know, we have to think about uh, doing things differently because, as she says, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. So we can't keep replicating these um, colonial Mm. ideas and we have to root back in our indigenous knowledges and also move away from thinking we have all the answers. And, And for me, you talked about student voice, and I think that's really key. But I'd love to hear about your projects. That's totally great. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. So uh, one of the projects I'm working on is with a collective called The Good Guys. We're a group of racialized men who are Black, Brown, Indigenous, queer, trans, and non-binary. And we aim to create radically loving alternatives to punishment, shame, and disposability. Um, That sounds like a a really big goal. Um, And we certainly haven't achieved it. Um, but we've made small, bold steps forward. And we're using a mechanism called pods. Uh, Pods have become probably popularized during the pandemic as uh, the people that we limit ourselves to see in person uh, without our masks. But pods have been used for generations. For example, during the 80s, during the AIDS crisis, queer and trans people of color use pods or small intentional groups to find intimacy, safety, and support. Sex workers have been using pods as a necessary tool for safety um, and support. Um, Pods have been also used in transformative justice circles as a way to walk alongside um, both someone who's been harmed and also who's engaged in harm. And that term was popularized um, by the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, Mia Mingus, who's been doing transformative justice work for uh, survivors of child sexual abuse and those who have engaged in child sexual abuse. So we look to our ancestors, we look to uh, around us as racialized men and said, let's try and use this mechanism. Self-selected groups of people in our lives that we already have some trust with, and that we already have a level of intimacy with. Um, because when asked, who, do, who, who would you turn to if you experience harm? Or who would you turn to um, if you engaged in harm? More people are actually likely to turn to people that are close to them than people that share a p- political analysis. And so what some of the work around transformative justice has found is that political analysis can actually be learned afterwards. That building relationships and intimacy and vulnerability um, is the starting point. Now we had really big goals coming out of this very, this this project of pods of racialized men, and we had to sort of step back and be flexible and realize that most men actually don't know how to actually even practice vulnerability. And so we've spent the last year, from January to August, practicing vulnerability, practicing support, creating agreements. Um, And these are all consent-based practices as we move towards what accountability might look like. Um, And so that's one project that I'm super excited about and super proud. We actually have two art exhibits, one that just occurred recently, one that's occurring uh, next month, um, and a guide that's coming out, particularly for racialized men. We know emotional labor has been placed on feminized folks, has been placed on trans women, has been placed on women, particularly those of color, forever. 
um, it's time for us as racialized men to stand up and learn the skills necessary to take on that emotional labor, um, to center the needs and the harm that we've caused, and to acknowledge that we've caused harm, while acknowledging that we've been harmed ourselves as we move towards taking accountability. Um, it's a big project and it's going to take probably years and years and years, um, but we call it a small, bold experiment. Mm -hmm. And um, it's impacted my own life by looking around me at the people I turn to when I've been harmed or the people that I turn to when I've engaged in harm and have actually created my own pod that specifically um, aims to have more vulnerable and intimate conversations while increasing our skills to responding to harm. I was going to say, just, I can see the, like I can hear and I can see the excitement and the motivation and the passion in your voice and your face. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to like highlight that. This is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just, uh, our, our desire is to build more relationships um, and to increase the capacity of people to respond to harm uh, while addressing the conditions that enabled the harm in the first place. And that's a big task. Mm -hmm. um, but the more we have these conversations and the more we're intentional about this work, um, the more possibilities can happen. And mm -hmm. so this is a project I'm really excited about. Uh, we've been working with Across Boundaries, which is a mental health service provider specifically for racialized folks. Uh, and we've been working with Rittenhouse, which is a transformative justice collective that I belong to. And it's been around since uh, the 80s as we learn to increase capacity, our own capacity and the capacity of the people around us. It sounds wonderful. And we can't hear, wait to hear how you transform and support you in any way. So that sounds great. So there are an ongoing patterns of institutional heteronormativity that maintain power imbalances and resist change in the school system. In a 2008 study conducted in the U.S., 82% of in-service teachers report no exposure to 2S LGBTQ plus issues in their pre-service education. So I'm wondering, in your experience working with educators, has this changed at all in the past 13 years? The need for pre-service and in-service teacher training on issues and experiences of 2S LGBTQ plus individuals, has it kind of gotten better? And what type of training do you think is needed? And perhaps where are the gaps in your opinion? That's a mouthful, but uh, we'll talk about it. It's a really, really, really good question. Um, what do teachers know before they actually come into the classroom? Mm -hmm. I haven't been... Uh, to uh, my Bachelor of Education, my, my teacher's program at OISE since 2005 or 2004. So it's been, you know, 17 years now. And at the time, there was one course that was called Inquiries to Education um, uh, that focused on LGBTQ identities, and it was optional. Um, I don't know how much has changed since then. I know there are folks that have been doing research on it, Wayne Martino, Keenan, um, Omar Kajic, I think I'm pronouncing their last name correctly. Um, and what they've found is that there's actually very little that has changed, despite what education institutions um, are saying. And we're seeing this reflected uh, at our school boards. And you mentioned heteronormativity. I would also add cisnormativity, that our current structures require a student to out themselves as trans, non-binary, or gender non-conforming in order to be accommodated 
And then there's this panic from the staff around this student. Oh my goodness, what do I do? And how come staff uh, don't have the resources to do that? So there's both education that needs to be done before teachers enter the education system. And there's actual structures that need to change within school boards that assume that everyone is cisgendered or uh, the same gender that they were assigned sex at birth. Um, And I'm kind of excited or really excited to announce uh, that a research proposal uh, I I made alongside with uh, other folks of the Gender-Based Violence Prevention, uh, Alana David and Abby Magidson, and with folks from the GSA Network, particularly Arthur, and folks from the Human Rights Office, Roz Salvador, this research proposal uh, actually would center the voices of trans, non-binary, and gender-exploring youth, particularly those who are Black and Indigenous, racialized, and disabled, um, and ask them what they need in order to thrive. And they would be the researchers, and they would be the ones to rewrite TDSB policy so that we already anticipate that they exist as opposed to their having to identify themselves before we then um, engage in some process of accommodation. So this is super, super exciting because as far as I'm aware, no policy has ever been written by students or the people who are most impacted by them. um, And they will be the researchers. Now we have a lot of data already. In fact, 2018, I think was the first time the TDSB actually asked about mental health data for non-binary students. And the data was not surprising, but was showed that non-binary students experience uh, mental health um, at one third of those of cisgender students. One third. That's a low, 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 low number. Um, and if we look at the data and We're still waiting for this, but we know that students who have intersectional marginalized identities and who are also trans or non-binary, that number is even going to be lower. So our own systems and structures uh, are harming these students because it's as as if we're not anticipating that they already exist. And we're Mm -hmm. making a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, or someone who may not even identify to out themselves in order to be accommodated, to use the right name, to use the right pronouns, to use the bathroom, and to see themselves reflected uh, in their school and in their teachers um, and in their curriculum. And so this project um, will take the lead of these students as young as kindergarten, um, who will demonstrate to us through their own imaginations and through their own embodied knowledge and wisdom what it is they need to thrive, what thriving means to them, and what these policies need to look like uh, in order to not only help them survive, but in order for them to thrive within a school system that centers their needs. This is awesome. It's amazing. I wish I could take part if I can participate at all and support. I'd love to. I think it really, for me, uh, talks about what Freire talks about, the banking model of education. This is really breaking that apart, and it's part of anti-oppressive education. And I, I love it because we often don't give the people who are impacted by policies the chance to inform those policies. So I think this is critical, and this is way the way we create 
sustainable mm-hmm. education and sustainable outcomes, but also equipping students with the skills and the uh, advocacy skills for themselves and the self-efficacy to be able to advocate when they graduate as well, because we're giving them this uh, opportunity. And I think it's really important. I'm really glad that this is happening. And I think it is the way forward, right? Student voice students have so much to give us that we don't have to have all the answers and we don't have to create all the policies. We just need to listen. And you also mentioned thriving. And I think I like that word way better than resilience because I feel like resilience is something we have to like muster through, but thriving is just, this is my state of being and this is what I need from you to thrive and be my best self. Right. And so I, I really Absolutely. like that. I really, really I, I really appreciate your um, emphasizing student voice. It's something we talk about, um, but it's often an a- afterthought, um, and it's and it's often done in a tokenistic way. Uh, what if we actually centered students themselves to say, what question should we be asking? Mm-hmm. Um, what does thriving actually mean to you? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the issues or problems that you're seeing? What is working for you? Mm-hmm. There's an amazing researcher in the States, uh, Dr. Kia Darling-Hammond, who's particularly working with uh, queer and trans youth of color, um, who came in with you know no assumptions or hypothesis as to what thriving actually meant to them. But they came up with these five sort of categories for what thriving meant. And it was community. Um, and that was found sometimes through activist communities and organizing selfhood the ability to just actually be yourself and not be surveilled or policed um abundance pleasure and that's something i think we don't focus on at all in our educational systems Mm -hmm. um students need pleasure um, and many different things bring our students pleasure. And that's actually a necessary part of them thriving and learning and succeeding in our education systems and life. And then relief, um, relief from harm um, and the right to refuse. Um, and then there was the sixth dimension, which was just being. And what she found was that this moment of thriving and being happened not for extended periods of time, mm-hmm. but just in tiny little moments sometimes that uh, she calls queer eruptions. Um, and so we're really interested in finding out what creates those moments and how can we expand them uh, so that students at the Toronto District School Board and in other school boards uh, who are queer, trans, non-binary, gender exploring, and also racialized, Black, Indigenous, disabled can thrive in our school system and can tell us what it is they need. um, And we can be responsive to that and center that. I love it. I'm so excited to read and learn more. I'm going to go look up that framework soon after this as well, because uh, that it's very, it feels very community driven. It feels very peaceful. Like just even hearing you talk about it. I wish I had that in school. I wish I had that in my first five years of my career. Right. Mm -hmm. And this type Mm -hmm. of mentorship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just I just love all of that. And I also have questions. Um, I'm coming to the end of my questions. I know you've been on here for with me for a long time, so I appreciate that. Something that's really near and dear to my heart. So when I saw this in your Twitter handle, I wanted to ask you. In your Twitter handle, you have the hashtags free Palestine and no one is disposable. 
that I read out in your bio. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you chose those two statements and what they mean to you? So when I was shunned uh, for my community um, and uh, kicked out of my home, um, I found belonging and acceptance within activist communities. And one of the very first activist communities that I connected with in the early 2000s was No One Is Illegal, who fights for dignity um, and rights and status for refugees and for undocumented folks. And we know Palestinians, of course, are one of the largest refugee populations in the world. And it was at that time that I met, um, I guess she might've been in her teens then, um, Rafif Ziada, um, who is a Palestinian poet and activist. And many of the folks that I worked with at No One Is Legal were also Palestinian. And I got to hear their stories um, and the experiences that they've had in, from generations of generations, um, some of them who have their own very families um, were expelled from Palestine during the 1948 Nakba. I was also a settler in Canada, and I recognize that Canada is a settler colonial state, and it supports settler colonialism in Palestine. They're interconnected and intertwined. And so my justice work must necessarily include Palestinians. It must center Palestinians the same way I center indigenous sovereignty here on Turtle Island, the same way that I center um, black liberation, same way I center disability movement justice. Um, and I say free Palestine very loudly and very particular because it's been silenced and it's been erased um, and it's been turned into something that it's not. Um, asking for the liberation of an erased and uh, ethnically cleansed people who are illegally occupied should not be a big deal. In fact, that is the very definition of interdependence because there is no liberation for anyone without the liberation of Palestinians. There is no liberation for anyone without the liberation of black folks. There's no liberation for anyone without the liberation and sovereignty of indigenous people here in Turtle Island. And the reason that we can erase or hide or um, punish those who even say free Palestine is because we have created a narrative that sees them as disposable. And so no one is disposable is, is, a, is a mantra, is a hashtag, is a sign for me of loving interdependence. And that includes both in interpersonal relationships of those who have been harmed, both within our activist communities, uh, both within larger liberation work. But if we can see ourselves, that piece of ourselves in the other, and if we recognize that our liberations and that our struggles are inextricably linked, then we must say, free Palestine. And that's the only way that we ourselves, 
who many of us have been traumatized, many of us have been harmed, many of us have experienced intergenerational trauma. This is the only way that we will also heal ourselves. And so freeing Palestine and the recognition and knowing of the embodied wisdom that no one is disposable um, is significantly important to me. Thank you for that. I'm going to hold that with me in terms of sometimes I forget, you know, when there are situations where I'm in a position where I don't have power or I don't have dominance, that sometimes I forget that we're all linked and that a piece of me is in a piece of someone else and vice versa. And I think it's really key. This is um, something that is very near and dear to my heart. And I think that you are correct, right? We have to recognize the ways in which all liberation is connected and all oppression is also connected. Uh, and I, I really appreciate you sharing that with us and really highlighting that empathy and that humanness that comes from that, right? Um, and that no one is disposable. It's a, it's a very powerful statement and one that requires a lot more digging into, a lot more self-reflection, I think. Um, and something else that you said in our conversation all throughout really, is that we can't pick and choose where we want to be, right? If we're an advocate, if we're an activist, if we are truly practicing anti-racism, it happens in every aspect of our lives and everything we do say um, and think. So I thank you so much for everything you shared with us. And I wanted to know if there's anything else you'd like to share with myself or our listeners, any other great projects you're working on, anything you'd like to plug. Um, and how can folks get in touch with you if they'd like to connect and support you? Just thank you so much for this opportunity to be on such an amazing podcast. I, I'm so I'm so glad that this these types of resources are available and these discussions um, are available for folks to connect with. So I really encourage folks to connect with your podcast, cura curated conversations if they haven't already. Um, I'm available to reach on Twitter at uh, xjustice. X piece. The heart of a blue whale weighs over 1300 pounds and its heartbeat can be heard up to four kilometers away. And its arteries are so big that a human could actually swim through them. I don't think that heart is unique to me. Um, and I do think that we need to address the shame that prohibits us sometimes from accessing that heart and seeing ourselves in other. And we need to create more vulnerability while acknowledging structures of power in a very real, real, real way. Um, both have to be done at the same time. And I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, how do we create vulnerability and spaces for compassion and care and seeing ourselves for the other and transforming harm while actually looking at the structures and systems of power that enable that harm to happen. Um, and there are so many beautiful people doing this work. Um, I've mentioned some of their names already. Um, and I would really encourage folks to look at some of their works. Kai Cheng Tom's I Hope We Choose Love is an amazing favorite of mine. Uh, Beyond Survival, which is strategies and stories from the transformative justice movement. We Do This Till We're Free by Maryam Kaba, who is a, a, a prison abolitionist who's actually doing 
this work and has so much wisdom to share um, for decades. And most recently just came out Becoming Abolitionists, Police, Protests in the Pursuit of Freedom by, by Derek Purnell. Um, there is so much wisdom out there and so much wisdom that queer trans women of color, black communities and indigenous folks have embodied and have been using for decades. And I think transformative justice is something we're only recently talking about. And I think it's really important for us to start introducing these concepts and ideas into our own education system and stop using shame, discipline, punishment, fear, and disposability as ways of responding to harm. Thank you. Uh, I'm not lying when I say that you have given me life. You've reinvigorated something in me and really motivated me. And this is why I do this work. You know, sometimes it is emotionally draining. It's exhausting. Um, you know, sometimes I can't sleep, but just hearing you just motivates me to keep doing the work and keep learning and growing. And I hope that everyone listening is also motivated to continue doing the work, to start doing the work, to share, to have conversations that are uncomfortable, take some risks and vulnerability and start doing our own work um, on ourselves. So thank you so much, yeah. Javier. I am so grateful <laughs> you, to have you. I'm seriously a fangirl from a long time and it is such a pleasure to have you uh, talk to me today. So thank you so very much. I really appreciate your I, time. Thank you so much. I'm a fan of yours too and super grateful to be on here. Thank you. <laughs>